Chapter One of Windsor Castle, Book Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Perard. Windsor Castle, Book Three, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter One, comprising the first two epochs in the history of Windsor Castle. Amid the gloom, hovering over the early history of Windsor Castle, appeared the mighty phantoms of the renowned King Arthur and his knights, for whom it is said Merlin reared a magic fortress upon its heights, in a great hall whereof, decorated with trophies of war and of the chase, was placed the famous round table. But if the antique tale is now worn out, and no longer part of our faith, it is pleasant at least to record it, and surrendering ourselves for a while to the sway of fancy, to conjure up the old enchanted castle on the hill, to people its courts with warlike and lovely forms, its forests with fays and giants. Windsor, or Windleshore, so called from the winding banks of the river flowing past it, was the abode of the ancient Saxon monarchs, and a legend is related by William of Malmesbury of a woodman named Woolwyn, who, being stricken with blindness, and having visited eighty-seven churches and vainly implored their tutelary saints for relief, was at last restored to sight by the touch of Edward the Confessor, who further enhanced the boon by making him keeper of his palace at Windsor. But though this story may be doubted, it is certain that the pious king above mentioned granted Windsor to the abbot and monks of St. Peter at Westminster, quote, for the hope of eternal reward, the remission of his sins, the sins of his father, mother, and all his ancestors, and to the praise of Almighty God, as a perpetual endowment and inheritance. Unquote. But the royal donation did not long remain in the hands of the priesthood. Struck by the extreme beauty of the spot, quote, for that it seemed exceeding profitable and commodious, because situate so near the Thames, the wood fit for game, and many other particulars lying there, meet and necessary for kings, yea, a place very convenient for his reception. Unquote. William the Conqueror prevailed upon Abbot Edwin to accept in exchange for it Wakendoon and Ferlings in Essex, together with three other tenements in Colchester. And having obtained possession of the coveted hill, he forthwith began to erect a castle upon it, occupying a space of about half a hide of land. Around it he formed large parks, to enable him to pursue his favorite pastime of hunting, and he enacted and enforced severe laws for the preservation of the game. As devoted to the chase as his father, William Rufus frequently hunted in the forests of Windsor, and solemnized some of the festivals of the church in the castle. In the succeeding reign, namely that of Henry I, 
the castle was entirely rebuilt and greatly enlarged assuming somewhat of the character of a palatial residence having before been little more than a strong hunting seat the structure then erected in all probability occupied the same site as the upper and lower wards of the present pile but nothing remains of it except perhaps the keep and of that little beyond its form and position in eleven o nine henry celebrated the feast of pentecost with great state and magnificence within the castle in eleven twenty two he there espoused his second wife adelicia daughter of godfrey duke of louvain and failing in obtaining issue by her assembled the barons at windsor and causing them together with david king of scotland his sister adela and her son stephen afterwards king of england to do homage to his daughter maud widow of the emperor henry v proof that windsor castle was regarded as the second fortress in the realm is afforded by the treaty of peace between the usurper stephen and the empress maud in which it is coupled with the tower of london under the designation of Malta de windsor at the signing of the treaty it was committed to the custody of richard de lucy who was continued in the office of keeper by henry the second in the reign of this monarch many repairs were made in the castle to which a vineyard was attached the cultivation of the grape being at this time extensively practised throughout england strange as the circumstance may now appear stowe mentions that vines grew in abundance in the home park in the reign of richard the second the wine made from them being consumed at the king's table and even sold it is related by fabian that henry stung by the disobedience and ingratitude of his sons caused an allegorical picture to be painted representing an old eagle assailed by four young ones which he placed in one of the chambers of the castle when asked the meaning of the device he replied Quote, I am the old eagle, and the four eaglets are my sons, who cease not to pursue my death. The youngest bird, who is tearing out its parents' eyes, is my son John, my youngest and best loved son, and who yet is the most eager for my destruction. Unquote. On his departure for the holy wars, Richard Coeur de Lyon entrusted the government of the castle to Hugh de Pozzi, Bishop of Durham and Earl of Northumberland. But a fierce dispute, arising between the warrior prelate and his ambitious colleague, William Longchamp, Bishop of Ila, he was seized and imprisoned by the latter and compelled to surrender the castle. After an extraordinary display of ostentation, Longchamp, was ousted in his turn on the arrival of the news of richard's capture and imprisonment in austria the castle was seized by prince john but it was soon afterwards taken possession of in the king's behalf by the barons and consigned to the custody of eleanor the queen dowager in john's reign the castle became the scene of a foul and terrible event william de braus a powerful baron having offended the king 
his wife Maud was ordered to deliver up her son, a hostage for her husband. But instead of complying with the injunction, she rashly returned for answer, quote, that she would not entrust her child to the person who could slay his own nephew, unquote. Upon which the ruthless king seized her and her son, and, enclosing them in a recess in the wall of the castle, built them up within it. Sorely pressed by the barons in 1215, John sought refuge within the castle, and in the same year signed the two charters, Magna Carta and Carta de Foresta, at Runnymede, a plain between Windsor and Staines. A curious account of his frantic demeanor, after divesting himself of so much power and extending so greatly the liberties of the subject, is given by Holinshed. Quote, Having acted so far contrary to his mind, the king was right sorrowful in heart, cursed his mother that bare him, and the hour in which he was born, wishing that he had received death by violence of sword or knife instead of natural nourishment. He wetted his teeth, and did bite now on one staff, now on another. As he walked, and oft break, the same in pieces, when he had done and with such disordered behavior and furious gestures he uttered his grief that the nobleman very well perceived the inclination of his inward affection concerning these things before the breaking up of the council, and therefore sore lamented the state of the realm, guessing what would follow of his impatience and displeasant taking of the matter. Unquote. The faithless king made an attempt to regain his lost power, and war, breaking out afresh in the following year, a numerous army, under the command of William de Nivernois, besieged the castle, which was stoutly defended by Inglehard de H. and sixty knights. The barons, however, learning that John was marching through Norfolk and Suffolk, and ravaging the country, hastily raised the siege and advanced to meet him, but he avoided them, marched to Stamford and Lincoln, and from thence towards Wales. On his return from this expedition he was seized with the distemper, of which he died. Henry the Third was an ardent encourager of architecture, and his reign marks the second great epoch in the annals of the castle. In twelve twenty three, eight hundred marks were paid to Engelhard de Sigoni, constable of the castle, John Le Draper, and William the Clerk of Windsor, masters of the works, and others, for repairs and works within the castle. The latter, it is conjectured, referring to the erection of a new great hall within the lower ward, there being already a hall of small dimensions in the upper court. The windows of the new building were filled with painted glass, and at the upper end, upon a raised dais, was a gilt throne sustaining a statue of the king in his robes. Within this vast and richly decorated chamber, in 1240, on the day of the Nativity, an infinite number of poor persons were collected and fed by the king's command. During the greater part of Henry's long and eventful reign, 
the works within the castle proceeded with unabated activity. Carpenters were maintained on the royal establishment. The ditch between the hall and the lower ward was repaired. A new kitchen was built. The bridges were repaired with timber procured from the neighboring forests. Certain breaches in the wall facing the garden were stopped. The fortifications were surveyed and the battlements repaired. At the same time, the queen's chamber was painted and wainscoted, and iron bars were placed before the windows of Prince Edward's chamber. In 1240, Henry commenced building an apartment for his own use near the wall of the castle, 60 feet long and 28 high, another apartment for the queen contiguous to it, and a chapel, 70 feet long and 28 feet wide, along the same wall, but with a grassy space between it and the royal apartments. The chapel, as appears from an order to Walter de Grey, Archbishop of York, had a Galilee and a cloister, a lofty wooden roof covered with lead, and a stone turret in front holding three or four bells. With inside it was made to appear like stonework with good ceiling and painting, and it contained four gilded images. This structure is supposed to have been in existence under the designation of the old college church in the latter part of the reign of Henry the Seventh, by whom it was pulled down to make way for the tomb house. Traces of its architecture have been discovered by diligent antiquarian research in the south ambulatory of the dean's cloister and in the door behind the altar in St. George's Chapel, the latter of which is conceived to have formed the principal entrance to the older structure, and has been described as exhibiting, quote, one of the most beautiful specimens which time and innovation have respected of the elaborate ornamental work of the period, unquote. In 1241, Henry commenced operations upon the outworks of the castle, and the three towers on the western side of the lower ward, now known as the curfew, the garter, and the Salisbury towers, were erected by him. He also continued the walls along the south side of the lower ward, traces of the architecture of the period being discoverable in the inner walls of the houses of the alms knights as far as the tower, now bearing his name. From thence it is concluded that the ramparts ran along the east side of the upper ward, to a tower occupying the site of the Wiccan, or Winchester, tower. The three towers at the west end of the lower ward, though much dilapidated, present unquestionable features of the architecture of the 13th century. The lower story of the curfew tower, which has been but little altered, consists of a large vaulted chamber, 22 feet wide, with walls of nearly 13 feet in thickness and having arched recesses terminated by loopholes. The walls are covered with the inscriptions of prisoners who have been confined within it. The garter tower, though in a most ruinous condition, exhibits high architectural beauty in its molded arches and corbelled passages. The Salisbury Tower retains only externally, and on the side towards the town, its original aspect. 
The remains of a fourth tower are discernible, in the governor of the alms knight's tower, and Henry III's tower, as before observed, completes what remains of the original chain of fortifications. On the 24th of November, 1244, Henry issued a writ enjoining, quote, the clerks of the works at Windsor to work day and night to wainscot the high chamber upon the wall of the castle near our chapel in the upper bailey, so that it may be ready and properly wainscoted on Friday next, the 24th occurring on a Tuesday. Only two days were allowed for the task. When we come there, with boards radiated and colored, so that nothing be found reprehensible in the wainscot, and also to make at each gable of the said chamber one glass window, on the outside of the inner window of each gable, so that when the inner window shall be closed, the glass windows may be seen outside. Unquote. The following year, the works were suspended, but they were afterwards resumed and continued with few interruptions. The keep was new constructed. A stone bench was fixed in the wall near the grass plot by the king's chamber. A bridge was thrown across the ditch to the king's garden, which lay outside the walls. A barbican was erected, to which a portcullis was subsequently attached. The bridges were defined by strong iron chains. The old chambers in the upper ward were renovated. A conduit and lavatory were added, and a fountain was constructed in the garden. In this reign, in all probability, the Norman Tower, which now forms a gateway between the middle and the upper ward, was erected. This tower, at present allotted to the housekeeper of the castle, Lady Mary Fox, was used as a prison lodging during the civil wars of Charles I's time, and many noble and gallant captives have left mementos of their loyalty and ill fate upon its walls. In 1260, Henry received a visit to Windsor from his daughter Margaret and her husband, Alexander III, King of Scotland. The queen gave birth to a daughter during her stay at the castle. In 1264, during the contest between Henry and the barons, the valiant Prince Edward, his son, returning from a successful expedition into Wales, surprised the citizens of London, and, carrying off their military chest, in which was much treasure, retired to Windsor Castle, and strongly garrisoned it. The Queen Eleanor, his mother, would fain have joined him there, but she was driven back by the citizens at London Bridge, and compelled to take sanctuary in the palace of the Bishop of London, at St. Paul's. Compelled at length to surrender the castle to the barons, and to depart from it with his consort, Eleanor of Castile, the brave prince soon afterwards recovered it, but was again forced to deliver it up to Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, who appointed Geoffrey de Langelle governor. But though frequently wrested from him at this period, Windsor Castle was never long out of Henry's possession, and in 1265 the chief citizens of London were imprisoned till they had paid the heavy fine imposed upon them for their adherence to Simon de Montfort, who had been just before 
slain at the Battle of Evesham. During this reign, a terrific storm of wind and thunder occurred, which tore up several great trees in the park, shook the castle, and blew down a part of the building in which the queen and her family were lodged, but happily without doing them injury. Four of the children of Edward I, who was blessed with a numerous offspring, were born at Windsor, and as he frequently resided at the castle, the town began to increase in importance and consideration. By a charter granted in 1276, it was created a free borough, and various privileges were conferred on its inhabitants. Stowe tells us that in 1295, on the last day of February, there suddenly arose such a fire in the castle of Windsor that many offices were therewith consumed, and many goodly images, made to beautify the buildings, defaced and deformed. Edward the Second and his beautiful but perfidious queen, Isabella of France, made Windsor Castle their frequent abode, and here, on the 13th day of November 1312, at forty minutes past five in the morning, was born a prince, over whose nativity the wizard Merlin must have presided. Baptized within the old chapel by the name of Edward, this prince became afterwards the third monarch of the name, and the greatest, and was also styled from the place of his birth, Edward of Windsor. End of chapter 1